Welcome to Fails, Falls, and Fuck-Ups. Today I'm joined by my original fuck-up, the man <laughs> who kicked all of this off because he needed to keep me away from him and occupy my time somewhere else. Joining me is Barry B. Coughing. I don't know his middle name is B, but it has a nice alliterative effect, so I'd really <laughs> like it to be Barry B. Coughing. It's a J. But, you know, that's that's close enough. It's not as much fun. I am not as satisfied and not as happy with what your mother did to you. Sorry. I'm sorry. It was more my dad, but that's fine. How are you doing today, I pretend to care? <laughs> I'm doing good. I pretend to answer. No. Uh, no, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Once again, we're talking. Now, what the non-existent as yet, because we haven't released this at all, viewers and listeners don't know, is that this very concept was born out of Barry's brain because we did a different podcast on a different show, but it was going to be, it is very similar to what we're going to do now, but he said, this is what you should do. And being the lemming that I am, I'm doing what I should be done doing. You, you, you were definitely asking the unique questions of don't give me the glory, give me the gory, you know? Yes. I just, again, when somebody is as successful and as accomplished as you, aside from hating you for that, and I so do. I just want to hear in all the ways that you are not successful and what you have learned from that, because ultimately the message I'm trying to get out is that you're not just not you, the royal you, your fuck ups, the royal your, your fuck ups are the fertile ground from which success can grow from, provided you're not a moron. And since I don't know you, I have no idea whether you are or not. I'm just hoping you're not a moron. Listen, I'm, I'm a consistent moron we'll put it that way cool so we're talking to mr consistent moron about some of his fails so barry regale us with your tales of how your skills and success were born out of problems and mistakes wow um so i guess we can do the quick overview um i was born in dayton ohio to uh two high school sweethearts and uh they got married at uh, 18, had me at 19, as uh, was the, the uh, method in that day. They graduated class of 1960. They thought that happiness was a place. So uh, our family moved to, to a, a million places searching happiness uh, from Ohio, Indiana, Florida, Texas, ultimately California. And uh, so I was a new kid in school. It took me 16 schools to make it through 12th grade. So uh, I can give you an idea of how often I was the new kid. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I had a lot of experiences with, with that starting up to, with being the new kid. Um, my first F up is I wanted to be a football player. And then my, uh, freshman year of, uh, high school, I screwed up my back and my elbow and couldn't even go to PE. What position were you trying to play? I was a defensive, uh, uh, offensive guard, defensive tackle. Taking the big hits. Never, yeah. I was never going to really, yeah, I'm a pretty big guy, you know, but not big enough. So I was never really going to make it, but I got really hurt. And uh, so I ended up with, uh, ended up at a school that was split in Dunedin, Florida. And so I was able to take four choir classes a day. I took two electives on my thing, but they were a school that had outgrown their school. So they did juniors and seniors in the morning and freshmen and sophomores in the afternoon. And I had, uh, I'd been part of their, their program in the junior high leading up to it. So I ended up, doing four choir classes a day. And that was sort of the first pivot of, wow, I screwed up my back. I screwed everything up. And then I ended up, 
you know, failing my way into music. <laughs> my family was very musical, but we did that. And then we, uh, uh, in part, as part of our happiness quest, ended up moving to Texas, uh, where I tried my sophomore year, tried football again, but was in choir. And I went, did you get ribbed by being when you were on the football team because you were in choir and the theater department? So that must have gone over great. Oh, yeah. So a choir queer and a stupid jock. Yes. Depending on where I was, you know. So, yeah, the football team didn't get me being in choir and doing musicals and that stuff. And then all the people in uh, in the uh, the choir and the musical in the drama department hated my guts. And you were the new kid. So not only did you have no friends, you had negative friends. They just, you know, they just automatically assumed, yeah, well, you're one of those. Boom. We're not even going to give you a chance. So I ended up my... Uh, uh, junior year, I auditioned for and got into the high school for the performing and visual arts in Houston, which is where Beyonce went. It was the second uh, high school for the performing visual arts in the United States. And it was amazing. Changed my life, you know. Um, Gave you rhythm. Yeah, did really, really, really well at that. And then keeping in my line of F-ups, got a scholarship to Juilliard, but my family couldn't afford all of the living expenses. Like they would pay for the school, but they're not going to. They wasn't enough, wasn't, you know, wasn't enough that they were going to keep putting me up there. So I couldn't get that. We couldn't really get financial aid for some other unique reasons. And so I ended up with an opera scholarship uh, at HBU in Houston, you know, was the one, was the thing I took and boy hated it. And there's another F up. I was, you know, cause they, in order to teach music, they want to put a bunch of rules on something that doesn't have rules so they can grade you. And so I would ignore them. They said, we're going to go up to a German six. That's as far as you can write. And I'm going, yeah, watch this. I got nines, you know, sevens, elevens. I'm doing really cool stuff and getting horrible grades for it. And then I, I'm uh, on a vocal scholarship. And, of course, for the freshmen, they, they put my voice lessons at, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning on Monday. Wonderful. And I got into a gig uh, playing out at the, the Woodlands at a real – kind of on the lake sort of rich person's club for, for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But I was singing three hours a night and tearing up my voice. And I'd get in there Monday, could barely talk. And they basically said, you know, we're going to, uh, yeah, you're our most promising freshman, but if you don't quit all the rocking and the rolling, you know, we're going to uh, take your scholarship. So I went, it's yours. <laughs> Another, maybe, maybe not the smartest thing. Well, how much would have following the master's have helped you later on in your career? You know, to be honest, not at all. The other thing too is a male voice doesn't mature until it's 40. I was super immature, you know? And so I was going to fail at that too. You know, so I just, I, I, I failed early and often, you know? So I got out of that, um, tried, really was struggling. I started playing in bands and thought, I'll just do that until I figure out what I'm going to do. Took another stab at college at the University of Houston where I proceeded to completely F off and take radio and TV performance. I took crap that I wanted to take, you know, and then financial problems with the family, you know, happened. And basically my money I saved up for college ended up going for rent. So I went F college, you know, so we're not doing that. Uh, and I started playing in bands and then I started, I figured I'd do that until I figured out what I was going to do for a living. And Somewhere two to three years later, I realized, you know, that thing you're looking for, you're kind of doing it already. Was there anything about the academic experience that ultimately paid off in any way? Or was it like, this is a great knowledge base, but it doesn't apply? It was horrible for me. Um, 
like when, when I, you know, cause the thing, when you go to the, a high school like that, like you go to a, if you go to a normal college and we're going to sing in Latin, I'm going, dude, I can cite me. Like I was so far, like I'd already gone to college. Basically that high school was so like, they stay an extra hour. You don't have any PE. So you're doing four hours a day in your art area. Combine that with my lucky break in Florida. I, I was already doing, you know, I'd already had, you know, basically three years of, of working multiple hours, not including the time at night and all that stuff. Uh, I really already had a college's worth of, of singing experience in choirs and things like that. So it just, they didn't have anything to teach me. Had I been able to go to a Juilliard or a, or a Berkeley or a USC or maybe a Belmont, North Texas, one of those schools, I think it could have been fine. But it, I wasn't able to do that. So it, it just wasn't a place for me. And, uh, and, and, and that's fine. It just ended, I ended up the school of hard knocks and, and, screwing my way up to uh playing in bands and i and the first bands my brother was my agent it was even funnier because he was younger and uh man he would book me at these god-awful places i played a, a place called the harbor lights by the ship channel and i mean chicken wire i mean all the stuff you're talking about and i'd watch all my friends you know that were playing in the cool jazz clubs and they'd sit down and talk to the people that came to see them so i'm at this i mean it was it was bikers and sailors and hookers. Oh my. I mean, that was the, those were the patrons, right? So I decide uh, I'm going to practice what I've seen those other guys do. Another one of my epic fails. Going up and talking to drunk sailors about like, so do you liking the music? Oh, it gets worse than that. But I, I, yes, along those lines. So, so we're there. They got chicken wire in front of the band. We've set up, we're ready to play. The club owner goes over and gives us the talk. Now, we get some fights around here. Somebody starts fighting. You some bitches keep playing. Don't you effing stop. You just keep playing. We got security. We got good people. We'll get it all cleaned out. But don't, don't you stop the music. We're going, that's kind of creepy, but okay. You know? Southern mosh pit. Yeah. So I go on one of the breaks and I'm sitting down talking to this one girl, you know, kind of Hispanic girl and she's kind of cute and all this. I talk to her. Then I kind of table hop and talk to this, this other girl that's kind of, Back in the day, a tube top, but clearly kind of a biker chick kind of girl. So we get up and we're playing the Eagles one of these nights, and I'm the bass player in this thing. So I'm doing the the intro, which is like boom, boom, boo-doo. And I see the two girls walk over and start talking to each other. And next thing we know, it's a full-on girl fight. So we're doing this, it's it interrupts into a complete chaos. The little Mexican girl grabs the the biker girl who's like got her by a foot pulls her tube top down, boobs her out there. She starts wailing. I mean, you can't believe the chaos. So that was my first mingle with the crowd at the wrong place. You know, I'm curious if this bar did one of the bikers or sailors come up and go like, this is our feeding ground. You go feed yourself somewhere else, boy. No, thank God. You know, but, uh, but needless to say, I was no longer flirting at that point. We were, (laughs) we were done, you know, and I was also younger, so we had different bands. Like we had one band we, we used to joke and call it Barry and the Beards. Like I was 19 years old and everybody else was like, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And I, but I booked the band. I had the acumen for, for getting us gigs. And so it was just, I was always, in, you know, kind of the, the idiot odd man out. Um, but you had the gift of the schmooze, so. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, I, and my brother being working at a booking agency and stuff, I knew the lingo, and you know, I was able to look at the contracts. So it just ended up, I did the, you know, there's always in every band some idiot that does the business. I was that guy. Uh, and so we kept growing, doing better. And I got to the point where I was playing at one of the bigger clubs. And uh, and I was also acting at the same time. I had an acting agent and and I was doing commercials and stuff like that. Like little stupid dinky things, you know, doing modeling and acting. Um, and uh, I got a chance to be in a movie, a horror film. At the time it was called The Outing. You know, they've now changed it to The Lamp. But it's one of those 80s scream, you know, lightning strike movies. Um, and but I was they were going to do a week of night shoots. So I was going to miss a week with the, at the, the venue we were playing and the band. I'd already sort of had I had a really great band that I was in. And, and I had wanted to take the band regional because we were really we were playing at a place in a rooftop that held two or three hundred people. And it was an 80s beat market. Like the fact we were playing was nice, but they were there to see each other. You need a soundtrack to cover all of the uh, um, mating calls. So. Oh yeah, definitely. You were needed. You were definitely needed. Uh, well, I mean, we we did what we did, you know. But uh, I was going to take the band uh, around Texas and kind of create a touring circuit, but uh, I got outvoted. So we're there, and then the club owner says, "Look, if you miss, uh, if you miss any time of doing this movie thing, I'll fire the entire." Band. And so the band gets together and they have a band meeting and they're, you know, they say, hey, we want to have a have a talk. And they basically, my band fires me. You got fired from your band because the $20 they were making per night was far too much. <laughs> no, no, they were making good money. Oh, not as much fun of a story. They, they stayed at the club and they got rid of me. Did you ever go back to the club to see them after like something else happened for you? And sort of like, hey guys, just checking in to see how you're doing because I'm doing great. Um, not really. I mean, I, a lot of those guys were, I mean, were still my friends and, and, uh, and later on they kind of, you know, some people, uh, kind of went, you know what, we're kind of sorry that we did that. Um, we, you know, we didn't really mean, you know, we didn't, we were young. We didn't know kind of thing. And it, it was great. It's all, I mean, they did what they thought was right at the time, but anyway, so I was there with no band, no nothing. So I started playing with this one horn band of older guys and I kind of was just doing that. And, I'm I'm playing at one of the hotels and uh, some friends had come out to see me. And one of the guys, the bass player had gotten so drunk that he falls over in the middle of a song, hits the ground and he lays down there and keeps playing. Well, it turns out he has hurt his back and can't get up. They have to call an ambulance to take him out. You know, the, the horn section, I mean, they were older guys that like to drink on the job. We'll put it that way. A lot of them are now clean and sober and, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but back then it was standard practice. Of course, you know, and so um, I'm looking, I'm going, man, I, this can't go on. And my, uh, that's one of my other famous stories. My, uh, what would become the, my wife of many, 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 many years, still my wife, uh, said, well, you know, hey, man, well, you got to get a, get a regular job. Why don't you get a job at McDonald's or something, you know, while you're, you know, while you're doing these, because these pickup jobs, you shouldn't be doing that terrible band or whatever. And I, uh, I went, wow, it's like, this is a pretty big fall. Cause it was really, that was the top club to, you know, am I going to be back in the chicken wire circuit again? Chicken fryer circuit. No joke, man. So I called a couple of, of girls I went to school with and really great singers. And, uh, one of them, uh, was teaching music at a Jewish nursing home. And the other one was a medical secretary. And I'm going, man, you guys aren't playing. And they're going, we'd love to be singing and playing, but nobody will hire us. I'm going, I'll hire you. Let's start a band. 
So I took the guitar player from the Drunken Horn band and we kind of put together this new thing with two Wailing Black girls and and we started to, you know, put together the demo tapes and everything to start booking. And one of the booking agents kind of pulled me aside and said, yeah, man, uh, we can't really book you. And I'm going, why? Well, you get one colored, that's okay. But you get two colored. See, they they draw a colored crowd and the colored crowd, they don't drink, they don't tip. But they basically told me, get rid of one of the black girls or we won't book you. You can have one token. I went, F you. That just triggered something in me. But still no one would hire me. So um, there'd be a jazz club that was uh, called Baxter's, where there were all these great artists and really a great scene there. It had been taken over. It was in a part of town that was kind of the gay part of Houston called Montrose. It still is. The the guys that had bought it... um, we're really having a terrible time. Nobody was going there. They changed it to call it, they called it the Club Flamingo, and it was horrible. And I said, I walked in the bar and I said, man, this used to be a hot happening, line out the door music club. Why don't you let me and my two fine ladies come in here for four nights only and let us show you what a live band can do for you. And we didn't leave for six months. We turned the club half straight, lines out the door. Took it over again, you know, and, and at the beginning, people would come and laugh, and, oh, Barry's playing a gay bar. And then the very band that fired me ended up playing on my off nights one weekend or something, you know, or we took a vacation, and they were filling in for me, you know. So it was like kind of, there was my comeuppance, if you want to talk about it, you know. But it, it turned into a back into a really great club and, and all that. So then it was then that I kind of uh, sort of failed my way into Los Angeles. I... Uh, met a, a wild man named Steve Tyrell who was from Houston and he had di- discovered BJ Thomas and worked with uh, Burt Backrack and, and Scepter Records. He was a radio promo guy, one of those sell ice to Eskimos guy. And uh, he was working with uh, Barry Mann, an incredible songwriter. And they started a company called Tyrell Mann and they were looking for songwriters and producers and, and they kept talking to different people in Houston and my name kept coming up. Oh, he's a good songwriter. Oh, that guy can sing. Oh, he's a really good producer. And I kept coming up and under all those. And they finally said, man, why don't you come on out here to L.A. and, you know, let us hear your stuff and all that. So I grabbed the the demos of the band and everything and ran out there. And the first trip out there, I ended up, uh, he, Steve was working on uh, Extremities with Farrah Fawcett. And it was James Russo's first film. He went in and uh, said, he said, hey, what do you got, you know? He, he's, he's got an interesting voice. He grew up in the third ward, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the Italians and the blacks and they was a real mixed neighborhood. So he, when you hear him on the phone, he sounded like, you know, he's going, yeah, Barry, come on in. You know, he sounded like, he sounded like a different person than what he was, you know, uh, ethnically anyway. And so he goes, we got a, we got a driving scene. We need a song. Have you got anything? I pull out one of my songs. He goes, that'll work. Boom. I'm in the movie. I come out of the next time he's doing, Eight Million Ways to Die. Uh, it was uh, Oliver Stone's script, um, Roseanne Arquette. It was Andy Garcia's first film. Um, and really, really a, a cool film. And I, I had one of the, the things from my band that had fired me, one of the masters from that, that session. And I put that in the movie and I went, that's it. Honey, we're going to, to LA. So uh, I ended up booking my then band. I, I'd gotten a role in a... Uh, an off-Broadway version of Leader of the Pack, where I played songwriter Jeff Barry from the uh, Brill Building and met Ellie Greenwich, who, who'd written the, the screenplay. She was his co-writer. 
And so instead of getting fired from uh, for doing something in the acting world, I got all my girls' roles in it, and the band was the band in the pit. So we moved the whole band in to do it, do a like a six week run. And as it turns out, we were gonna, I was gonna get married, and they changed the closing date. And so the closing date for the play was the day of my wedding. That sounds complicated. Oh my gosh! So after my wife got done crying, we just kind of thought it out. We moved it to an afternoon wedding, and we bought seventy tickets to the play for the for the reception. <laughs> and, so, and so we like kind of you know you could make some lemonade. We don't have to rent a hall. We can just have an after party. Exactly. And so it was fun because like a lot of the relatives that came in that who's this wacko that's marrying a daughter because she has a very normal family and I have and they got you this normal family got you. Well, I mean when when the, when we went to the wedding, oh my gosh, the bride and groom side, my side looked like the United Nations. Uh, my best man was Jewish. My my groomsmen were black, Colombian. You know, it was like it was like a whole mixed bag, and then hers just looked like a you know a sorority ball. You know. <laughs> Uh, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a unique wedding. And of course I wrote my own music to, to, uh, to walk down the aisle to and a friend of mine, Everett Harp, who's an incredible sax player. He mixed it for me and you know, everything while we were finishing. I love the idea of you walking down the aisle with like a sax person following you, just like playing <laughs> a tune. He did play soprano sax like Kenny G on the song too. But, uh. <laughs> Uh, but no, he was actually, he was one of my groomsmen. So he had to, he had to actually be in it. So he couldn't walk down the, the aisle, but it was, uh, it, don't tell it, me what he couldn't do. I'm just saying <laughs> you didn't yeah. think out further, far enough outside the box. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I get accused of that a lot. <laughs> Not. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, my, my whole life's been really unique and, and, uh, just some of the, the, the bigger F ups, the things that you think are terrible. A lot of them, either they turn out to be the best stories or they they teach you so much and put you like you don't really you don't really fail you know you you learn and you know and you fail if you fail to learn the lessons and do it again and again and again but i learn a lot more by failure than i than i ever do about success can you think of a time in your career where there was a moment where it felt like a bomb had gone off like this could not have gone more wrong and at the time you couldn't you couldn't see the silver lining to it, but then it paid off later on in unexpected ways. Yeah. Something that crushed you or almost crushed you. In all my stupidity, and I have a lot of it, mm -hmm. uh, I'd kind of grown up in Texas, so I watched South by Southwest evolve. You know, my band was supposed to play the second South by that there ever was. I mean, we, we had an A&R agent who, was, who said, no, I'll come see you in Houston. He gets drunk in Austin, never comes and sees us, and we turn down South by. So another maybe not great idea. So when I'd kind of been co coming back and forth, you know, to see South by, it was never as cool as when I was there because we used to play on Sixth Street. There's all these clubs and stuff. It was an incredible scene. Drinking age was 18 too, which made it even better. But uh, I, I would always tell everybody like that they like South by Southwest has lost its way. It's not a cool thing anymore. I could do a better festival any time on my worst day and somebody's accidentally like fate accidentally calls me on it. There's a venue called crossroads. What's basically, uh, what is it? Uh, it's basically the center of Houston. If you were to put a, a pin in the middle of Houston where the population was, uh, that's where this, this place was and a really kind of a hip mixed use stuff with restaurants and bars and living spaces. 
with a big outdoor area for a stage ringed by all these bars. And uh, they said, do you want to do a festival here? One of my friends was booking it and all that. And I said, yeah, I do. I'll take that main stage and I'll, uh, you know, I'll go ahead and, and uh, um, I'll do that. And of course, this is like three weeks before. So I ended up booking 54 bands on two stages uh, with two weeks notice. So we, we, we do that, and I, I get some friends and everything. We put it all together. We think we've got things plotted out. We can't get any sponsorship because they, you know, there's a lot of multiple screw-ups. At the end of the day, I end up losing a boatload of money. You know, and I, I press a two-song, uh, two-album, you know, two-CD soundtrack of all the bands on there, do all this stuff. Then the, uh, the people that have the, the place, uh, the, the event, they say, yeah, we, we don't want any hip-hop or R&B on the main stage. So this is like a reoccurring thing for me. I don't know why. So they're, they're going, yeah, we don't want those people on there. So, they, you know, I had the space, but now they're going to tell. Those people. Yeah, those people. So in the actual venue, they had this crazy place. It was a, a flower shop, coffee shop, restaurant with a stage. And so I'm going, hey, can we have you as part of this too? So I move all the hip hop indoors, put a second stage and do what I want anyway. You know, it's a theme with me. I also tied in with the, uh, the film school at the Houston Community College. So we had three cameras shoot, shooting the whole thing. Smart. And we've got stages and we've done all this stuff. We've done everything that we can do. We've got one of the recording studios gets us a 24 track recording. We record all the bands. We do interviews. We go over to the, um, the flower shop, coffee shop. And we do two days of panels and workshops where the bands would just, they would, they would sit down at a table and there'd be all the social media people there. Then they'd move to another table for producers and another one for labels. And I had all kinds of people involved. Uh, and I do this whole thing and end up losing a fortune. Like are we talking uh, Prius level fortune, BMW level fortune? Well, what was a fortune for me? It was probably seven or eight grand. Okay. So I used Dotson level of fortune. Yeah. 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 But for me, money, I didn't have somebody else had to come and bail me out. You know, uh, thanks Heidi. Uh, you know, just like really crazy stuff like that. And I, I had worked so hard. Um, uh, and I, it was one of those like curl up in a ball and I, I can't believe this could happen, you know, but 12, 12 months go by. I'm ready to try it again. And I try this other version. Obviously, I don't go back to that venue. I try another thing. And uh, it's another epic fail. I don't lose as much money, but it's, it's bad. Well, the second time, first time I failed, curl up in a ball. Second time I failed, I wanted a rematch. I went, let's run it. Like, I was pissed. You know, I wanted to do it again. And, <laughs> and as somebody, uh, you know, as a continued F up, I have done 15 of those since. I've done it in Memphis, Houston, uh, San Diego. You know, I've, I've done, you know, with COVID, we, we had one eliminated completely, the, one of the Memphis ones. We did one in Chicago virtual. We did a uh, San Diego boot camp virtual. Then we did a Columbus virtual. And it's continued to be what some people would consider a failure. But I always like to look at things on three levels. There's, there's money, there's knowledge, there's power. I got to get one of the three things or it's not worth doing. And in this case, I got more knowledge and power. Like, 
and marketing credibility. It's it's been one of the most valuable things I ever did. But you wouldn't think so. At, at the beginning, it looked like, why are you doing this? You're an idiot. My whole company. It took them three or four years to to to. They were questioning my sanity. But we started using it as a way to find incredible bands for film and TV. You know, I made all these relationships. You know, when you say, oh, I, I, I love what you did managing Guns N' Roses. I'd love to have coffee with you. You're going to get an F off. But if you say, hey, I'm doing a panel. Would you like to speak on it? I'll fly you in, put you up in a hotel. Suddenly, it's a completely different deal. I, I gained more, more connections, more knowledge, more everything. Uh, in what appears to be a failed uh, event. And now, the, you know, the credibility, the size of the events, if you go to springboardfest.com and watch the videos, you won't think it's a failure. And the, the people that we help, the good that we do, we ended up starting our own nonprofit called Sustainable Artists, and our entire goal is to teach people how to make a living. It's one thing to get people started. It's another thing to, to take them to the next step. Well, you're a natural networker, but I'm, but it sounds like, doing this festival, the horror show that it might have emotionally been for the first couple of years, what it did is it effectively put you at the center of the spider's web. Definitely. And more and more as we do it. And then COVID, which you think would be a complete disaster, taught us how to do virtual concerts and how to include. So the, the last one of those that we did, we had, we had 47 bands from, from 13 different countries. So now we're starting to have bands because we had them perform wherever they were around the world and videotape themselves and send it in. And then we broadcast it in a continuous eight hour show. And so we had, we had a guy in Turkey playing acoustic guitar on a grassy knoll while a balloon race, hot air balloon race was going behind, on behind him in Istanbul. We had a Russian band, Aitler, who pre performed outside of St. Petersburg in a forest. They had a laptop on a tree stump and hung a microphone over a tree and wrapped in Russian. Like we had, it started being all these incredible bands. We had an Indian girl who was stranded in Dubai who just like draped a gold curtain and sang a cappella with their backing tracks. And all this incredible art and, and artistry that came out of, out of this. And we got to see, uh, uh, we had an ex-model who's an incredible bluesy Southern singer out of the UK who sang in her kitchen. Hopefully while making tea, that would have just, it just would have been like a nice, uh, she, I'm sure she could have made some great tea, but it's even in the failures, the, the, these bright silver linings and things that, that come through, uh, it's almost never a failure. You know, the, 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 you learn in the attempt, like when things succeed, it gets to be more difficult. Like a couple things have been going really good and we really can't identify why. We've got two or three different theories. But with failure, you can usually pinpoint it to, yeah, you effed up here, here, and here. You, it's harder to do with success. You, you, you really learn much more from a, a good, healthy failure. Would you say that there is a, a type of failure or screw-up that would be absolutely fatal to a career, or is everything recoverable? Only thing fatal is death, <laughs> you know? I, I've I've seen that's the next action movie. Fatal is death. Yeah, fatal is death. Well, it just doesn't do that. Like I saw this. I was going over through a bunch of quotes and stuff that I trying to kind of find the quotes while I've been building this new platform of 
sort of guideposts of wisdom that I either discovered or that I 100% agree with having gone through this. And uh, they have this, this one thing where they got this wolf snarling, you know, really big picture. And it says, if I'm not dead, I'm not done. <laughs> and I went, I went, well, yeah, that kind of, I, I have days where I feel like that, you know, that is me and good. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the real one we use all the time is the black Knight never loses. You know, I'll bite your legs off, you know. Come back. It's but a scratch. We'll call it a draw. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's very I'm very much like that. In fact, my kids laugh about that because yeah, I it's tough to beat somebody who won't quit. Yeah, for real. That's the thing that I got going for me is I want it more than some people. And I, I will just keep going. We don't want these to go on that long because we we <laughs> want them to be we want them to be digestible and there can be a lot of us in a small space of time. So, Barry, leave my listeners, our listeners, our viewers, with some degree of wisdom, with thought, some brain drippings that you would like to spread upon the visual landscape. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to follow. Your question is so much better than any answer I'm going to have. <laughs> brain drippings. Wow. Um, you know, I, I... I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of my friends, even when we were talking about the concept of this thing, you know, I mean, this is a podcast that all of us would love to see. Even like you, you talk like one of the things I have on my LinkedIn that gets me in trouble is I, I don't look like the people that, you know, I think it, I think the truth is funny. So I have on there, you know, I'm an Emmy loser. Uh, I had a, a, my own record deal in Warner brothers. I went double cardboard, you know, uh, had a failed label on Sony. You know, like, I, I think that stuff's funny. It's It happens to be true. You can find my greatest hits in a trunk at the bottom of the sea. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I think I think, I think think my mom bought all seven copies. You know, that kind of deal. I'm not a, I'm not ashamed to fail. Like, I think, I think shame is the big thing. People act like, you know, you should be uh, ashamed of your failures, and I'm not. In fact, I'll give you 20 minutes to draw a crowd. I'm about to try something crazy. Come on in. I think the only shame is not trying. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I'm not afraid to fail. It's like it doesn't, you know, and some of it was my childhood, which well, we, we'd have to be doing a, a, a therapy class instead. But uh, yeah, I don't, um, it, it's one of those things that it doesn't bother me to fail. You know, I just get back up. Who was great at anything the first time they tried it? If you put in the work, sucking is just a way station along to competency. Yeah. Well, the, 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 that quote, you know, you either... You either succeed or you learn. Yeah. There is no failing in failure. I, and again, another thing that I agree with, just did not have something witty to say to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. No problem. <laughs> Occasionally you run out. It just, at some point you're just dry and it's sort of like. Uh, well, it's also too, that was like, that, that, that took a decidedly uh, uh, serious turn, you know. <laughs> sorry. I, I, I'm normally funnier. You've caught me late in the day. Sorry that I dropped a nugget of wisdom just as a nugget of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it should have been. I could go back to, 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 to hookers and bikers and sailors. Oh, my. You could, but only if your wife is not around. Yeah, well, that's pre-wife, so I can, I can tell the whole story then. All right, man. Barry, shamelessly plug yourself. I know you've got a whole bunch of stuff to spew out here. All right. Uh, so my core business is uh, licensing music to film and TV. Um, so I've got a company called MusicSupervisor.com. So we do music services for film supervision, uh, editing, composition. We, you know, do all of those things for artists and stuff. We have a company called we get artists.com. 
where we represent artists for film and TV placement. And uh, we're really, really good at that. So you can go check that out. Those are the two places. And then I've got some evil plans. Uh, got to start a little music revolution coming up. So you, uh, you are forewarned and forearmed. Well, there it is. That was the Barry that is Barry Coughing. Follow me on all the socials and also subscribe to the channel. Next week, I'm joined by the digital diva herself, Ruth McCartney, and we will find out what it's like to be the sister of rock royalty. I got beaten up. I got my hair chopped off. I got my lunch stolen. I had some kid pee in my Wellington boots um, in the cloakroom. I got beaten up with two Bibles. I got knocked over the head.